Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Today, paying for stadium improvements improvements with pension funds? It's just one topic we'll discuss in our monthly check-in with attorney and city government expert Chris Hand. Later in the show, local artist and activist Hope McMath, whose new exhibit works to reconcile her moral precepts with her family's Confederate legacy. But first, it's been a busy several weeks of headlines at the state and local level, from a proposal to give the sheriff veto power over wrongful death settlements to the start of the JEA corruption trial. I'm joined now by Chris Hand, attorney, longtime City Hall insider and observer. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Good morning, Ann. Thanks for having me. What state and local headlines do you have questions about? Give us a call at 904-549-2937 or email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also message us on Facebook and Instagram or tag us on X at FCC on Air. Chris, you're our go-to expert when it comes to matters of law and Jacksonville and the law of Jacksonville, which is the city charter created when the city was consolidated in 1967. Um, I want to talk about this bill that would give the sheriff and other constitutional officers essentially veto power over lawsuit settlements that the city is reaching with plaintiffs. What do you make of this from a public policy standpoint? Well, it's now been passed by the city council. Last night, last night's meeting, they adopted this change in a 15 to 4 vote. But essentially what it would do is right now under kind of the city policies and procedures in the law, certain lawsuits Uh, can be settled by the Risk Management Division in conjunction with the Office of General Counsel. Uh, And, you know, lawsuits settle for all sorts of reasons. Often it's for business reasons, that people don't want to incur the time, expense, risk of going to trial. And so right now that tends to be an internal process, even for the constitutional officers, the sheriff, supervisor of elections, tax collector, property appraiser, clerk of courts. Uh, As a result of this new legislation that has passed, uh, they will now be more directly involved in this process. They will have to agree to settlements affecting their particular divisions. Uh, The law was amended to say that if there is a disagreement between uh, risk management and the constitutional office, that tie can essentially be broken now by the city council president, who can essentially decide to override the decision of the constitutional officer. Um, this may seem arcane and 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 something that a lot not a lot of people will deal with, but it has you know potentially significant fiscal consequences for the city and for individual city employees as well. It'll be very interesting to watch going forward. Mayor Deegan and her administration, her chief financial officer Anna Brochet, were very vocal, uh, expressing concerns about this legislation. You know when it was before the council. Uh, the council has now passed it, but of course, in order to become law, the mayor either has to sign it or allow it to become law without her signature. She also has the option to veto the bill. We'll have to see over the next two weeks which of those options she chooses. Although given that vote that you just mentioned, a veto doesn't seem like it would withstand a subsequent vote. It might not, but sometimes mayors veto bills for you know all sorts of reasons. I remember uh, during the time I was at City Hall, City Council passed a pretty significant appropriation to buy new furniture at the then-new Duval County Courthouse. Uh, Mayor Alvin Brown vetoed that legislation because he was concerned about cost overruns. Uh, That project, which is initially supposed to be about $195 million, ended up being closer to $400 million at Mm -hmm. the end of the day. Mayor Brown, concerned about those cost overruns, vetoed uh, that legislation. City Council ultimately overrode the veto. But mayors can sign or veto legislation for a variety of reasons, so we'll have to track how that develops. So this calls into mind the complicated relationship that the city has with its city attorney. So I'm first of all curious, you know, when this gives veto power, for instance, to the sheriff, is the sheriff properly included? Does he count as a client in the in the the case of this settlement or is it outside of his purview? I mean, prior to this law. And then also, I want to get a little bit into the, you know, how the Office of General Counsel, the city attorney represents all of these various agencies and how difficult and kind of complicated that can be? Well, there's no question the sheriff's office is a client of OGC when they are being sued, when that entity is being sued. And what often happens in some of these cases, and for certain types of lawsuits, civil rights violations, certain types of torts, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office is, is you know, sued under the name of the city of Jacksonville, because of course, we're all part of a consolidated government here. And sometimes in those cases, individual JSO employees uh, can be sued as well. So this has some implications for that as well. Um, But again, because we're all part of one consolidated city of Jacksonville, historically, 
those sorts of decisions as to whether to settle or not settle lawsuits uh, are made at a little bit of a different level. This will obviously change that process. But it also speaks, as you're saying, to the unique nature of the Office of General Counsel. This is unlike many other cities and counties across the country. We obviously have an, an Office of General Counsel with an enormous scope of representation, representing the mayor, the city council, uh, all of the constitutional offices that we just named, some of the independent authorities. Uh, so it creates a massive scope of representation where OGC is obviously constantly having to balance that and serve a variety of clients as well and can run into these types of situations at times. And so the general counsel, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, he was appointed by the mayor, uh, Michael Fackler. Um, he's had a difficult couple of months with the council. He's had uh, some difficult questioning about the issue of the Confederate monument removal. Um, and then most recently, this issue of the settlement that the sheriff said he objected to. Um, whether he kind of indicated that he didn't get proper notice. Um, we actually spoke about this on Friday and uh, Nate Monroe um, discussed, you know, he had found some evidence that the settlement was actually in the works and being discussed with the sheriff, uh, with the sheriff officer that was involved as far back as May when uh, before, you know, Donna Deegan was fully in office. Let's hear a little bit of that. The, the folks who handled this, the city employees who handled this, this litigation in the settlement followed the ordinance code. There's no evidence anything improper happened. And the sheriff did, in fact, receive notification of this settlement being reached. I mean, if he thinks it wasn't proper, I mean, I can't argue with his feelings, but there was nothing improper that occurred here. So, Chris, the question of propriety is obviously what drove this. And that is also driving a lot of these discussions about the city council, their concerns about the, the general council, whether the they're getting the representation that they want. So talk about where that led last night and how difficult it's been for Michael Fackler with this city council so far. Well, it's the book of Ecclesiastes that tells us that there is nothing new under the sun. And complaints and concerns, you know, that the general council or perceptions that the general council is representing one part of consolidated government more than others uh, is, you know, is not sort of a, a new concern at city council. And we've, you know, we've heard this during other times and other administrations as well. You know, there has been a little bit of a uh, fraught uh, kind of relationship kind of over the course of the Deegan administration over the issue of who's going to serve as general counsel. You know, initially she had nominated former uh, city councilwoman Randy DeFore to serve in that job. It became clear she didn't have the support on city council uh, to receive the supermajority vote that a general counsel requires. And so uh, she withdrew her nomination and ultimately uh, Mr. Fackler was nominated. Just in full disclosure, I've known Michael Fackler for 20 years. We went to law school together. He's a very smart and well-regarded attorney, uh, but certainly came into the office of general counsel at a time where there are a lot of big issues. And one of the first ones he had to tackle uh, was the issue of Mayor Deegan's removal of the Confederate monument in Springfield Park. And there were concerns raised by council members over the kind of the legal justification for that. You know, the initial memo that came out when the monuments were removed, there were some complaints that it was a draft and sort of an unsigned memo at that point. And then when the final memo came out, there was some sort of change in the sort of reasoning as the way it was done. Um, but, you know, this isn't unusual for the Office of General Counsel over time to tackle very tough issues and for there to be some controversy about, you know, ultimately what those opinions are. It does seem like a little bit of a tortured relationship, though, in the in the sense of, I mean, lawyers, when they're handling clients in the real world, you know, they're going to great lengths to make sure they haven't represented somebody's spouse or sibling in a previous case or another law firm or another, you know, business that they may have had dealings with. And yet the city council attorney or the, the excuse me, the city attorney is tasked with all of these sometimes very competing interests, whether they're representing people at the school district or the city council or the mayor's office. Well, I think the short answer is it's just somewhat different in the government context from a conflict of interest standpoint. I think a former general counsel once put this really well to help explain why some of the traditional conflict of interest rules don't necessarily apply. That's former general counsel Rick Mullaney, who was one of the longest serving. And the way Rick put it was that when you're the general counsel, your ultimate client is the city of Jacksonville, that your job is to look out, legally speaking, for the interests of the entire city. Yes, you have individual clients. And at times, our charter actually empowers the general counsel 
to resolve legal disputes between some of the different branches of government. If the mayor's office uh, takes one legal position on an issue and the city council takes another, uh, the Office of General Counsel is, under our charter, empowered to issue a binding opinion to resolve that particular decision. As you can imagine, uh, whoever that decision goes against, there's going to be some concern and, and complaint about that. And that's been happening you know, ever since Judge Durden was the first uh, general counsel of consolidated government in the late 1960s. Well, we're talking about state and local headlines with Chris Hand, our local government expert. You are welcome to join the conversation by giving us a call at 904-549-2937. You can email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. And you can also reach out on social media, the platform of your choice. Um, let's talk a little bit about this relationship because it, it, it threatens to become a little bit of a narrative at this point between the council and the mayor. Um, what are your concerns about how that might shape the relationship in what you've described as a fairly important period for a new mayor? Well, that's right. And, you know, a, a former Mayor Jay Godbold used to say you can't do anything without 10 votes if you're a mayor. And so really being able to forge a relationship with enough council members to be able to help uh, move forward some of your key priorities to passage. And look, there has certainly been a lot of coverage recently about uh, what, you know, at the moment seems like some challenges in the relationship between the mayor's office and the city council. I think there's a couple of there's some things that are not surprising and some aspects of this that are surprising. It's not surprising that conflict would develop between a mayor's office and a city council. I can't think of a single situation in Jacksonville history where that hasn't happened in some form or fashion. I think what is surprising is how early it's happened. And that could speak to a variety of things, including the just current kind of climate and governing and politics in which we live right now. But, you know, traditionally, for example, in our administration, the Brown administration, that conflict developed, but it was toward the latter part of the administration, sort of the third and fourth years. This happened very early. And I think there's probably, like any relationship, it's a two-way street. And I think there are probably steps that, you know, folks on both sides, whether it's the mayor's office or the city council, uh, could take to improve the flow of traffic on that two-way street. I think in my experience, you know, one thing that council members tend to be concerned about is if they're not informed and they're surprised. And one flashpoint seemed to be when the Confederate monument was removed from uh, Springfield Park at the end of December, there seemed to be some concern from the council president, maybe some others, that they were not notified in advance. That has now led to a variety of pieces of legislation, one that passed last night regarding you know, the mayor's acceptance of donations from outside groups. Uh, council will now you know, have to approve those going forward. There's some discussion of the mayor's transfer authority in terms of being able to move money around the city budget. And, you know, now there's even some discussion that the city council might attempt to have its own legislative council, something it's allowed to do under Section 7.01 of the Charter, but has not done for quite some time. And and so to be clear, they, they're talking about hiring their own attorney. Um, but they've done that for certain ex circumstances, certain situations. This would be more broad than that? That's right. I mean, now, this would not in any way supplant the role of the general counsel. The charter makes it very clear that the general counsel is the final authority on uh, issues of law about the city of Jacksonville. But the city council is, per the charter, allowed to hire its own legislative counsel to advise it on the legislative process or other matters related to the legislative process. Previous councils have talked about doing that. It, it came up during Mayor Brown's time in office. It came up at points during Mayor Curry's time in office. But council did not actually do it, except, as you say, on uh, certain specific issues. Investigating JEA. Or... JEA was a perfect example of, of council. Uh, pensions was an issue where, at one point, the city council talked about bringing in their own attorney. This would be an attorney of general legislative application who would work for, be employed by, or, or contracted by the city council alone would have to coordinate with the Office of General Counsel. I mean, cannot issue binding opinions that would supersede those of the General Counsel, but it does seem like a direction in which this council is now headed. So how do you think the mayor is doing generally? I mean, you said that you could see room on both sides perhaps to modulate um, the friction. Uh, this obviously is a very partisan time. She's a Democrat, the you know predominantly Republican uh, city council. How do you think she's doing when it comes to this uh, the spats in terms of her response, how she's addressing them. Do you think that she is in the right posture? Well, from her reaction to, I mean, just what she said publicly and in, in related to some of these issues that have come up, 
you know, there's there have at times been some concern about what council's done, but, you know, it seems like she's often looped back to, you know, but we want to continue to find ways to work together. I think that's one of the most important things that a mayor's office can do, which is to recognize the political climate and the governing climate uh, and not be afraid to, of course, in a respectful fashion, hold city council accountable, just as they're going to hold the mayor's office accountable. But at the same time, constantly be looking for ways uh, for the mayor's office and the city council to collaborate. It's fairly straightforward to figure out what the priorities of the 19 city council members are. You can ask them uh, and get into those individual districts for you know the 14 council members who represent those individual districts and figure out what those shared priorities are and just sort of continue to work at that relationship. I also think it helps for, you know, look, we have a strong mayor system here in our consolidated government. Many cities don't. And so the mayor really has a unique agenda setting uh, ability that mayors in other cities simply don't have because they might just be members of a city commission themselves. And I think that's one of the biggest advantages the mayor's office has and should take advantage of. The period between October 1st uh, in a mayor's first year, so October 1, 2023, and July 1, 2024, so essentially the latter uh, part of her first year, is a really crucial time for a new mayoral administration to be able to articulate its priorities, uh, advance those priorities, try to make progress both in achieving some of those priorities, but also making sure the public understands what those priorities are. And that's where the unique bully pulpit of the mayor's office gives her a chance to do that. The mayor articulated in her inaugural address last July 1st seven different priorities. Now is a very opportune time, uh, particularly, again, the council doesn't have a budget in front of it. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily driving the agenda. This is a time where the mayor's office can do that and really lean into those priorities that she articulated, both so that the public understands them and so they can take action related to them at City Hall. It's interesting that a couple of the pieces of legislation would appear to kind of chip away at the strength of that strong mayor. Um, I want to read a comment from Tom on Facebook. He says these moves in dealing with giving the sheriff veto power on settlements, empowering the city council to block the mayor on more financial issues and the city council seeking an independent council all have as a common denominator the dangerous concentration of power with the council and the sheriff at the expense of the mayor. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a different issue um, that is going to consume a lot of oxygen in the coming months, which is the Jaguar Stadium. Um, an interesting finance proposal being discussed this week, nothing, nothing firm, of course, but an idea that the city could use its own pension fund to help pay for stadium improvements um, and draw from this $5 billion pension fund, um, you and I will well remember a lot of discussions about how insolvent the pension fund is and was. Uh, how is it that it's become a honeypot for a potential you know, source of income to do stadium renovations? And these subjects never truly go away. They keep circling back. And as you remember, you know, back during the, you know, kind of latter part of Mayor Payton's administration, uh, during all of Mayor Brown's administration and the first part of Mayor Curry's administration, uh, pension reform was a huge issue at the city because of the skyrocketing contributions the city had to make to both the police and fire pension fund uh, and the general employees pension fund and the corrections pension fund as well. Um, you know, and so, you know, when I saw kind of some of this discussion about borrowing from the pension fund, it sort of took me back to that discussion. Um, the idea is here, the Jaguars are going to ask the city for somewhere between $500 million and a billion dollars in funding to renovate Everbank Stadium at this point. Um, the question is, where's the city going to get that money? Well, they could go borrow it sort of in the open market. Cities tend to enjoy tax-free financing, so it's a little less expensive than private. Or, as recently suggested by uh, Mike Weinstein, who's the lead negotiator, former chief financial officer of the city, uh, the city could borrow it from, or at least parts of it, from the pension funds. That caused me to go look at the draft actuarial report, for example, of the police and fire pension fund. And it was interesting because a lot of the numbers in that financial report are not all that different than they were kind of eight years ago when we were first discussing or last discussing this as a, as a major issue. Depending on how you measure it, the unfunded liability of the plan, in other words, those are the obligations the plan has to pay pension benefits to police officers and firefighters, um, uh, the unfunded liability that isn't covered is somewhere between $1.5 billion and $2.8 billion, depending on 
uh, how you kind of measure that unfunded liability, whether or not you give credit for some future tax payments the city is going to get. The plan is currently 45% funded. Now, generally in these matters, a plan is considered healthy, uh, or at least it was during, you know, eight years ago when this was being discussed, if it was 80% funded or above. So we're still a long distance from that. And if you look ahead to projections for 10 years from now, the plan is projected to be 45% funded. So not significant progress over the next 10 years. So I think all of that, and of course, if you look at things like the investment performance, last year, the fund lost somewhere between uh, $55 and $65 million in its investment. The unfunded liability grew by $80 million over the last time they did one of these reports. So you take all of that and you think, well, is this the best time to be taking potentially hundreds of millions of dollars out of the fund? The numbers don't seem to suggest that conclusion. Uh, it's interesting. Um, the you know last year seems like it was a pretty good year for most people's investments. I'm curious why it was so poor for the pension fund. I'm not sure if that's something that that you know, but it's interesting. It's discussed in that actuarial report, but it measures the period from essentially from October 1, 2022 to October 1, 2023. The expected rate of return on the plan each year is about six and a half percent. Uh, the actual rate of return for that year was 4.1%. So the plan's investments underperformed and as mm-hmm. a result lost money and the unfunded liability grew. Again, all of that going to the question of when you look at those numbers, it does suggest that maybe that is not the best funding source that the city needs to continue to explore a number of potential funding sources if they are going to need to generate this type of revenue for a renovated stadium. And I think that the way that... Uh, um Mike Weinstein has been framing this debate, um, who's kind of handling these negotiations for the mayor and is obviously a known figure around Jacksonville and the world of city government and finance, is that it would be sort of paying the city's own um, interest rate, you know, that it would be that would be going back into the pension fund. If they borrow from it, then they'd be paying that interest rate into the pension fund. It benefits the city as opposed to paying it to some outside lender. Um, Does that make sense? Is that reason to dip into that fund that you can see? Well, there'd be, I think, a few questions about that. Number one, is that interest rate greater or lesser than what you would get sort of out on the open market? Obviously, if the city is able to go into the open uh, finance market and secure money at a lesser interest rate than 6.5%, then you know that has to be a consideration right there because the debt repayment is obviously going to be less uh, at that point. But I think there's also a question about, again, with those numbers I just cited and with the health of the police and fire pension plan, is now the prudent time to be taking that sort of money out of the plan. Because, look, the plan obviously lost a little money last year in terms of its investments. We don't know what the future will bring if there are significant economic events that would significantly affect the, you know, health or the, uh, you know, or the, the numbers in that plan. Again, you want to make sure that you have as many assets as possible. The goal of pension reform was always to, as quickly as possible, try to make sure the plan was as fully funded as possible. Obviously, sort of basic math, if you're taking money out of the plan uh, and there is some sort of significant economic event, it might make it even harder to get to that healthy funding amount. I want to talk about a topic that has emerged now uh, again, um, finding a new superintendent for the Duval County School District. So Superintendent Diana Green retired or was forced out, depending on your perspective, last June, and the school district began a national search it's the 20th largest school district in the country, and they got 10 applications, some of whom weren't even qualified. So they closed the search in October. Now they're going to reopen it. Uh, talk about the challenge there for the district in finding a new leader. Well, I think there's probably a couple of challenges. One, they've decided this time to use the Florida School Boards Association to actually run the new search. So that, of course, immediately connects the, uh, our uh, public school system to those and all the other 66 counties around the state who are FSBA members. But, I mean, the head of the FSBA, Andre Messina, said at the Duval County School Board meeting that, you know, the one of the problems with the last search was that it occurred mid-year, that there might have been superintendents uh, who might have been concerned about leaving their existing districts in the middle of the year. But I don't think there's, I mean, even though this wasn't articulated, I don't think there's any way of getting around the reality. This is also a very fraught time uh, for public school leaders in Florida. There's been a lot of controversy over a lot of issues Uh, As a result, you've seen a lot of superintendents leave their job. You talked about the circumstances involved with Dr. Green sort of leaving her post. And so I think there's no question there's calendar issues, but it'll be interesting to see when this search starts anew, 
are potential applicants dissuaded from applying by sort of what's happened in the larger sort of political and governmental context. Uh, the timeline they're going to use is apparently they're going to start, uh, they're going to open the application window uh, middle of March, I think actually on the Ides of March, March the 15th, uh, beware the Ides of March. And uh, that's going to last for a month until the middle of April. Uh, and then they they hope to have a candidate in place by the summer in advance of the next school year. Well, we'll be tracking that. I uh, just want to briefly, briefly talk about JEA, that uh, jury selection in that trial is starting today, um, and the trial itself begins on Tuesday. What are you looking for in that as, a, as an observer and an, and an insider in city government? Well, it'll be very interesting to see, again, I think a lot of people were wondering, would this trial actually happen, or would there be some sort of plea arrangement that would come about. It appears that has not happened now. And so we're going to be hearing from a lot of witnesses. You know, there's a lot that's been uncovered by, you know, various, uh, the Florida Times Union, uh, WJCT, a variety of journalistic outlets about what happened there. But a trial is a truth-discovering exercise. And I think we're going to learn even more that we potentially didn't know about uh, what happened to JEA, particularly in the creation of this uh, performance bonus plan that is the subject of the charges against the former JEA CEO and CFO. It's expected to be a four-week trial or more, so uh, we'll probably revisit that again, Chris Hand. Um, thank you so much for being here. We uh, look forward to our monthly check-ins with you. Thank you, Anne. Look forward to seeing you next time. All right. Thanks so much. Up next, an artist and activist for Black Lives explores the roots of racism in her own lineage. Was it a vibe, you know? Yeah. Don't worry about a thing. Welcome back. I'm joined now by Hope McMath. She served as director of the Cummer Museum and Gardens for 22 years, is the founder of Yellow House Gallery, and is a highly visible activist on issues of racial justice. Hope, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Anne. So Hope, Yellow House has been around now for more than six, almost seven years. For people who haven't been or aren't familiar, what is the story of Yellow House? Um, so Yellow House is a space in North Riverside um, that was created to be a place where art and social justice and activism would intersect. And so we do that through exhibitions with local artists, um, specifically centering black and brown artists and uh, queer and youth artists. Um, but we also do it by convening people to have conversations around issues that matter um, and actually activate people to be engaged civically in um, creating progress in our city. So you've created this space as a platform for art and discussion and social justice. This is your first exhibit at Yellow House, though, as an artist. That's correct. So, um, I mean, I've been an artist since I was a child. There's a few points in my life where I sort of stepped away from it for a bit. Um, but Yellow House was really created. Uh, you know, I am just the holder of that space for community. Um, so, yes, this is the first time that the walls are actually holding my own art uh, for better or worse. <laughs> so this uh, first exhibition of yours, it's called Legacy Interrupted. What is the legacy that's being interrupted? Tell us about the inspiration for this exhibit. So there's there's a few, but the one that is central to the exhibition is uh, a part of my own personal story. Um, it's uh, recognizing over the last couple years in doing uh, research into my own family um, that there is a, a long legacy of um, enslavement, of uh, Confederate activity of ancestors who were engaged in uh, writing Jim Crow laws in the South and, uh, you know, just some folks up to a whole lot of no good. And um, I know a lot of people, especially those of us who are from the South, have that in their histories. It's not something that I was aware of, um, but was actually inspired to dig into 
really because I was witnessing so many other people that I really care about sharing their stories on a regular basis. And I realized I hadn't done my own work. And, uh, and so, uh, it's, it's that legacy of oppression and white supremacy and the separation of people that I, um, uh, wanted to better understand um, so that I could figure out um, the the work that I needed to do. So this is a story that you actually shared in the storytelling series, Untold Stories, that's at Florida Theater four times a year. Um, I want to hear a little bit of that, and I'm going to like to talk to you about it. In addition to naming his wife and his sons and his daughters and the tools that he owned and the livestock that he had, there was also a list of nine people who he had enslaved. It made me sick. And yet I wasn't shocked. In fact, there had to have been a part of me that knew that was gonna be there, which is why I had not looked. And that nine people in that first census record I found has now turned into 423. Why did you want to share that story in that forum? And why have you wanted to share it more publicly? Um, it's a good question. I mean, when I, I first started down this journey, it was something just very, very personal and something I was sort of doing on my own. Um, I, I think it's from being around a lot of really remarkable activists and educators that I have just um, come to understand and believe that justice only comes when we um, learn in public, uh, when we are willing to um, sort of lift up the messiness of our lives, both individual lives and collective lives, uh, that we can sort of uh, recreate this world. And uh, I was I was reluctant to do that story, but my good friend Barbara Colicello, who runs that series, um, is both convincing um, and brilliant in in helping people sort of get to that place. I have spent decades doing a lot of public speaking, and I've never been more petrified um, than getting ready to do that that um, storytelling on the Florida theater stage. And I, I realize it's because uh, for the first time, it was my own story that I was sharing. Was the research that you did scary? Was that a, a frightening undertaking or an intimidating undertaking, given your commitment, your passion for social justice issues? You know, I think I think subconsciously, um, as 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 we sort of have heard, um, I I knew I think my gut knew some of that was there, which is why I had never looked at it. I mean, I'm a 53 year old person. Why it took me almost 50 years to uh, even ask these questions is a little surprising, considering that at least for the last decade of my life, I have been focused um, around trying to play some positive role in racial justice work. Um, so the research was, it was, I wouldn't say it was frightening. It was, uh, you know, I found it sad how quickly I actually was able to find out a lot of this information. Um, you know, I did have a moment where I thought, oh my gosh, this is a little awkward, right? Here I am, this person out here proclaiming, you know, that, uh, you know, I care about, you know, anti-racist action and, and yet, I have a history full of oppressors. And then I thought, well, but it's really when we stare at the wretchedness of that truth that I think we can authentically um, be in conversation with community around how we can each be disruptors in those sort of cycles of trauma and cycles of pain. And I recall um, when you went to that uh, new exhibit, which is the kind of lynching, lynching memorial um, that documents from each and every state, you know, victims of racial violence. Um, that was a piece of history that is, you know, also a difficult, very difficult history that is a reckoning. And I, I wonder if that visit in particular influenced you to start looking into your own history. Uh, it absolutely did. So these trips that um, uh, 904 Word, one of our great organizations in the city that I'm proud to be a volunteer with, uh, they do these trips out to Montgomery to the Equal Justice Initiative sites and specifically to the lynching memorial. And it was on that trip, literally, that I recognized um, my own uh, lacking when it came to uh, dredging up, <laughs> sort of vomiting up um, some of what I, I felt was probably in my own past. Um, and there is something transformative about being in a place 
like Montgomery and seeing these sites where there's such courage in the truth telling. Um, they're seductively beautiful, which is also leads to these complex kind of visceral feelings when you're in those spaces. Um, but to gaze upon the names of, of men and women who have been lynched in this country um, is just so important. You know, we think about the more contemporary movement to say their names when we see, you know, black bodies, um, uh, you know, killed by um, uh, police violence and otherwise. And, you know, the idea of saying their names and sort of witnessing these losses and committing to doing something about it is um it's not just in the past, it's also today. Can you just give us a description of what people will see when they come to see this exhibit? Um, so I'm a printmaker, which means I do woodcuts and silkscreen and letterpress. Um, and so people will see 30 or so large-scale works um, that focus around three portraits. Um, one, which is of Hakalia McMath, my ancestor, who was a Confederate and an enslaver. Uh, you will also see a lot of imagery of the Women of the Southland Monument in Springfield Park. She is very central in the story of this exhibition. And then you will see portraits of Harriet Tubman. Um, not that I have any personal connection to Harriet Tubman, but the 423 people that my family enslaved, I don't have their images. We don't have their names because history tends to erase those folks. And so Harriet sort of stands as a symbol of both resilience and resistance um, and sort of is a stand in for um, those folks that um, I felt they needed to be in that space as well. And so... Um, it's a combination of of words and portraits and documents in these really multi-layered images that are complex and messy and where things get erased and things get revealed. And uh, for me, that is very much parallel to the process of this discovery of my own family's history. Um, I could have never worked as large scale as I did. Um, it's unusual for me to work this large, but I was able to do a residency at FSCJ in the fall. Um, and they have amazing facilities. And Patrick Maiko, who's a professor there, um, sort of stood beside me as I was doing this work. And so most of the pieces in the show are a result of that residency. Well, Helping Path, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story and sharing your story with all of us, along with your artwork at Yellow House. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for that. And up next, we're going to be talking about an annual event that explores the difficult history of Kingsley Plantation. Welcome back. The Kingsley Heritage Celebration is an annual event that celebrates the lives and heritage of the enslaved Africans who once lived there. It's held this Saturday on Fort George Island at the Kingsley Plantation. I'm joined now by Steve Kidd. He is the Chief of Science and Resource Management at the National Park Service. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks. Um, we're also taking your calls. If you have questions or comments, you can reach us at 904-549-2937 or email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Um, Steve, what is the Kingsley Heritage Celebration? What's the foundational idea? Well, it was started by Emmanuel Kingsley. He was a descendant of Anna and Zephaniah Kingsley. And it was started as a family reunion back in 1998. And it's grown into a celebration for the general public honoring the cultural legacy and spirit of the people who survived enslavement at Kingsley Plantation. Tell us a little bit about the history of the plantation. It is interesting in terms of the history of Anna Kingsley. Uh, she was reportedly a, a princess, a Senegalese princess. She was kidnapped as a child, um, enslaved. Tell us about then what happened when she was brought to Northeast Florida. Well, she was basically abandoned and left to run the plantation uh, on her own. So it's an interesting story of a person who was brought into enslavement and then basically enslaved others. So it is a complicated story, and I think we do a good job of getting into that and letting visitors know about um, the events that took place out there. So what is 
uh, the, the celebration entail? What can people who come to Kingsley Plantation on Saturday expect to see? Okay, yeah, it starts at 11 o'clock. Um, it's open to all. Uh, and we will have cultural demonstrations going on throughout the day, such as tabby making, where we'll be burning lime and mixing it with oyster shell. That's what a lot of the buildings that are out there were constructed out of. We'll have spinning and indigo dyeing and ranger-led tours throughout the day. But we're really excited at 2.30, we're going to be having some African folklore performing arts by the Oshiri Shiri African Folklore Group. And the Kasaka Dance Company will be doing African dance, uh, costume, and storytelling. And that's at 2.30. And then the, for the first time ever, we're going to have a nighttime luminary lighting. Tell us a little bit about the nighttime luminary. Um, and is that a separate ticket that people need? No, no. It's, it's open to all. It'll start at 6.15. And we will light candles. Well, they're little LED lights in bags. And then we'll be reading the names of the enslaved peoples who were held on Fort George Island for over 100 years uh, during its history as a plantation. The plantation itself is really remarkably intact. Talk a little bit about the condition of both the, the plantation house and the, the place where enslaved people were, the cabins where they lived. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's the oldest surviving example of an antebellum Spanish colonial plantation in the U.S., and it exemplifies that transition from Spanish Empire rule to U.S. territory governance in the early 1820s. And it's in remarkable condition. And in great condition, too, are the cabins the enslaved people lived in. They're sort of shaped into an arc. And when you enter the plantation on Palmetto Avenue, you see these to your left and right. And we've done a good job of preserving those. We apply a lime wash every year to keep the um, oyster tabby intact and you know, water and rain and things like that threaten to deteriorate it, but we're trying to uh, do what we can to preserve those. And oyster tabby is kind of similar to coquina, but it's kind of a man-made mixture. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. And oyster. With, with no stone here in Northeast Florida, uh, they took oyster shell, which is abundant, and burned that and made lime from that, and then they would take whole shells or par- partial shells and mix in with that, and you get a very durable substance. I mean, these cabins have been around since the 1820s, and they're still, you know, in, they're in partial deterioration, but um, it's a very durable substance. How has this celebration changed over the years, um, particularly in recent years? I know that part of the celebration, as you said, is reading the names of the people who were enslaved there and doing, you know, an, uh, this honoring ceremony. That wasn't always the case. How has the the plantation and the Park Service kind of adapted to our growing knowledge and concern about that history. Well, it's great. You know, what started out as a, a family reunion for some of the people who were uh, descendants of the people who were enslaved there is grown, and we have descendants from both sides. King uh, Zephaniah Kingsley had several wives, not just Anna. So some of his descendants from uh, his other family have joined in and, and come and learned about their relatives. Well, Steve Kidd of the National Park Service, thanks so much for joining us in previewing Saturday. Great. Great to be here. Thank you. Hope to see everyone there. Up next, comics who inspire laughter without offending anyone. Florida International University is Miami's Carnegie R1 Public Research University. FIU is recognized as the number four ranked public university by the Wall Street Journal and is a leader in environmental resilience and innovation. More at news.fiu.edu. Mosh's 2024 Gala takes you from galaxy to garden, a celebration of fantastical elements found in our backyard. This event supports the Mosh Genesis Initiative to create a new state-of-the-art museum. More info at mosh.org. 
On the next Fresh Air, we remember Peabody Award-winning broadcast journalist Bob Edwards, who died on Saturday at the age of 76. He was the first and longest-serving host of NPR's Morning Edition, from the show's inception in 1979 until 2004. He was also a longtime host of All Things Considered. Join us today at noon on WJCT News 89.9. There's a sleuth out there sniffing out significant problems in scientific papers. He's unemployed and lives in an apartment in Wales, and he's uncovered major errors coming out of some of the most prestigious scientific research institutes in the country. There are certain things that I look at which I think, hmm, I don't understand how that could have happened by accident. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Today at 11, here on WJCT News 89.9. Beirut, Lebanon changed on August 4th, 2020. At 6 p.m., nearly 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate stored at the city's port exploded. Hundreds died, hundreds of thousands were left homeless. Still, no one has been held accountable. Next time on 1A, the Beirut explosion in the past, present, and future of Lebanon. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. And we're back. This Saturday, three local comedians will take the stage at Murray Hill Theater to serve up, serve up wholesome humor that's appropriate for all ages. The Clean Comedy Series features Joey Nickel, Mike Freed, and Danny Johnson. I'm joined now by Mike Freed and Joey Nickel. Welcome, both of you. Hi. Hey, thanks for having us. Let's start off with clean comedy. Give me a little definition of what is clean comedy. How does it differ from typical types of comedy? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's different other than you know what what joey and i both experience because we're relatively clean and we work at all the other comedy clubs in town and travel and so forth is that people will come to see us and they'll say you know that was great but that other person you know they used some language that wouldn't make my spouse comfortable or i wouldn't want to bring people from church or what have you so what we want to do is test that and see if people want to come out and see clean comedy so should be just as funny and uh, it's not to say that comedy that uses vulgarity can't be funny but in this instance, it's going to be all clean. Uh, we've got Danny Johnson from Dry Bar Comedy and uh, Joey, of course, and myself. And uh, the ticket sales are great, uh, but there are still some available. We think it'll be a great opportunity for Valentine's Day. There's, I've seen a definition that says, you know, clean comedy is generally free of not just profanity, but things like racism, racial, racial, you know, pejorative jokes about, um, you know, minority communities of one kind or another. And so it's, um, you know, Joey, something that is possibly a little bit more of a welcoming space for people who maybe aren't, you know, sure, interested yeah. in that sort of treatment. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I mean, and there's there's different levels of clean comedy also. Uh, like if you're doing, uh, if you're doing, there's like club clean. I do a lot of clubs. So it's like, well, we're, we're doing a clean night. That just means don't say the F-bomb. Like that's that's all that means. Like it, everything else goes at that. But we're what we're doing is is family-friendly comedy. Like we want... We want people to bring their kids. We want people to have an experience with comedy. Um, like Mike said, it's not like you can't be funny if you're not clean, but we just want to be able to have everybody who wants to come. Yeah, and, and to your point, um, you know, comedy uh, can be divisive, and, and obviously there's plenty of divisiveness in public discourse right now. Mm -hmm. um, we want to provide jokes to make people feel good and feel good about coming out to laugh and uh, celebrate and uh, laugh about what unites us rather than what divides us. And less people think that there's something missing from clean comedy. There's some very household names who are sure. clean comedians. Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld, Jim Gaffigan, uh, Arvin Mitchell, Megan Hanley. There are people who are really well-known, famous comics that are... Nate Bargatze right now is yeah. one of the most popular comedians out there, and he's perfectly clean. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Joey, what brought you to comedy in the first place? Oh, man, I just um, didn't want a real job. Like, that's... Uh... <laughs> <clears throat> no, I was always just good at talking. Like, I just wanted to make people laugh. I grew up, you know, I wasn't like the best athlete. I wasn't the smartest kid. Like, I always just wanted to make people laugh. And I, I think I always wanted to be a comedian from, like, when I was very little. I think I told my mom one time, I said, I think when I was like 10 or something, we were watching Full House, and I saw Joey 
you know, uh, Joey Gladstone doing his stand-up. So I want to be a comedian. And she said, no, you don't want to be a comedian. You'll end up divorced or depressed. And I, <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Yeah, I know. So, so it never really occurred to me to be a job. Like, like it's a thing that you can just pursue if you want to until until I was, you know, later in life when I decided to, to do it. I've been doing it about 10 years now. And I'm just trying to picture you little. You were little at some point? Well, littler. Okay. Yeah, smaller than I than I am. I like that your mom had a pretty good punchline there. Yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> nice delivery and everything. Uh, Mike, who are some of your favorite comedians? Uh, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of Dimitri Martin, who was just in town, uh, outstanding comedian, and Mitch Hedberg, who's passed, but uh, that sort of setup and punch style of joke, and Stephen Wright, uh, three that I I try to emulate in that that style of comedy. But you know, there's so many that I like. Those are the three. That uh, if I could change lives with them, I would do that. Uh-huh. And Other Jim- than Mitch Hedberg, I mean, he's dead. So, oh. yeah, don't want to switch with him. No, no. no. But when he was successful, yeah, yeah he was great. <laughs> uh, Joey, it's Valentine's Day. It's kind of no better time to tell a joke. Uh, have you got one for us? That <laughs> nice maybe is that was a Valentine's clean, clean setup there. No for pressure, that. Joey. <laughs> no, I, I I'm married. You're married. Is that is that I, right? I am How married. long have you been married? Uh, th- uh thirty. Tw- uh, twenty some year. Twenty. My producer this isn't going well. This 21. Is... <laughs> 21, 21 years. Okay, so a little, little longer than me then. I've been married for almost 16 years. and I, But I have a lot of friends that have not been married as long as I have, and they always ask me advice. Like, how, what's the secret? How do you stay married for so long? How do you stay in a happy marriage? Uh, I figured it out early on. I figured it out within the first year. It is separate blankets. That's the separate secret. Blankets. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. That is the secret to a happy marriage. If you have separate blankets, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, I just changed your life. Uh, you need to have separate blankets, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there because you can have other things like um, when we got house, like when we moved into nicer houses through the years, we would always kind of separate a few things like separate sinks, that kind of stuff in the bathroom. Uh, like sh- now we have a separate shower and a bathtub. She takes the bathtub. I take the shower. Uh, she's allowed in the shower if she wants, but I'm not allowed in that bathtub. Uh, that, and honestly, that's the smart move. You don't want to clean up after me. That's not. Yeah. So. We have separate, but it doesn't, you know, now we're really happy because we have separate houses. So yes. That's, <laughs> oh. that's a perfect arrangement. <laughs> yeah, no. I uh, That would have been so much cheaper, separate blankets, than two divorce lawyers. Yeah, so exactly. You know what I'm talking about. I, you should have started with the blankets first. talked to you first, yeah. yeah. Um, so we are looking forward to this event. It is Saturday night it at is. the Murray Hill Theater. Lovely Murray Hill Theater, historic Murray Hill Theater over off Edgewood in Riverside. Seven o'clock. Where can we get tickets? You can get tickets on Murray Hill's uh, website. Murray is M-U-R-R-A-Y. Theater is spelled pretentiously with a R-E at the end. Comedians Mike Fried and Joey Nickel, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And that's our program. Join us Thursday for our monthly Ask the Mayor segment with Jacksonville Mayor Donna Deegan. I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Shake it off, shake it off, yeah, yeah, to the left, to the right. One step, one step, shake it off, yeah, yeah. Shake it off, yeah, yeah. We're gonna be fine. We're gonna be alright. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.